You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.31, Peace in Our Time, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and hey, why don't you pull up a chair, have some food or a drink, and all you have to do is decommission your competing Gundam podcast. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and I regret to inform you, I took 33% more notes than usual on this episode. It's gonna be a long one. Thankfully, it should also be a good one. I mean, they're all good. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 433 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Engel Null, Luigi C, Chris... Steven, and Mark S. This podcast would not be possible without your support. And we also had a returning patron this week. Welcome back. You may have already gotten your shout out, but we do notice when former patrons rejoin and it means a lot to us. The final round of voting in the Mobile Suit Breakdown Season 3 Haiku Contest, with prizes generously provided by the USA Gundam Store, has begun over on GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. Over the past month, our judges have winnowed a field of 220 Gundam poems, down to just eight contenders for the grand prize. Thank you again to everyone who entered, and a huge congratulations to each of our finalists. Twitter users Super Aaron Man, Owen Marilyn, Air of Rage 0115, Dort Doot, Boyfrem, and Sunny FFTL, Kurt on Facebook, and Eric, who submitted via the website. Your poems made it through the gauntlet, but only one of you can win the crown. As for which poems will win the favor of Nina and I, that remains to be seen. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 33. Afternoon in Dublin, or Daburin no Gogo. And I know that my whole thing on this podcast is making more work for myself each successive season, but I've realized that since the whole point of this podcast is to try to understand the specific context around each episode and to get better insight into the people on staff who contributed to Gundam's evolution over time, besides the most famous ones, I've realized that we should probably start telling you when each of these episodes came out and who was in charge of them. So, this episode originally aired on October 18th, 1986. It was written by Suzuki Yumiko and directed by Imanishi Takashi, his first time working on Gundam. And for research this week, Nina has staff profiles for episode director Imanishi and animator and animation director Kaneyama Akihiro. But first, the crisis of infinite radio dramas continues over on Radio Free Shangri-La. A 
After countless ordeals, the heroic crew of the Federation science vessel Tomorrow are safe at last on the fortified artificial planet known throughout the galaxies as Thride Z, capital of the League of Free Planets and seat of its hereditary suzerain, Space Princess Miranda. They can, at last, rest and recover. For Lieutenant Vale Meadows, it is also an opportunity to reflect. Captain, I've got a funny feeling about this place. I don't know if we should trust Mackenharm or the League of Free Planets. Good heavens, Vale. Were you voted most likely to look a gift horse in the mouth in your class at the Academy? No, sir, that was Cadet Noah, but I did win a Bronze Cassandra on three separate occasions for correctly predicting impending disasters. At the hotel, they gave us separate rooms, and suddenly I was alone, truly alone, for the first time in months. I took a bath, I'd missed those, and when I emerged, I found a selection of ball gowns waiting for me. As the evening settled in... Looking good, Lieutenant. I don't think I've ever seen you with your trousers off before. Sir, that is a very awkward way to compliment my dress. As we pulled into the palace driveway, I turned to Strobe. Captain, I hate these kind of events. I'm the type who attaches myself to the one person I know and sticks with them all night. I'd never have agreed to come if you weren't so insistent about it, so... Please promise you won't abandon me once we get inside, okay? Of course, Lieutenant. You have my word. But inside... Welcome, dignitaries from across the League of Free Planets. Thank you for joining us. Look! Their Supreme Commander Mackenharm! Wait here, Vale. I'll be right back. I wouldn't see him again for the rest of the party. I made my way to the bar... Maybe I'd seem less awkward with a glass in my hand. Zabibi. I think you've had enough, sir. Zabibi. Zabibi. Am I ever glad to see you? The normally unflappable space squire looked as out of place as I felt. That was kind of comforting. Maybe misery really does love company. Then I heard a familiar voice calling me. Excuse me, Lieutenant. This is my baby sister, Bethany. Bethany, this is Lieutenant Vale Meadows. We serve together in the Federation Science Corps. Alice vanished as quickly as she'd appeared, leaving us in her sister's care. Oh my gosh, it is just lovely to meet you two. I'm Bethany Computesworth of the Shangri-La Computesworths, but you can just call me Bethany. Alice has told me so many stories about your adventures together. I think my favourite is the one about how you got sucked into a wormhole and trapped in another dimension far beyond the reach of modern science. Oh, speaking of which, how did you get back to Earth? I'm not on Earth. This is Space Princess Miranda's palace on Thride Z. But I'm at a party in Dakar on Earth. Are you saying that each of us is at the same party and at different parties simultaneously? How is that possible? Captain Strobe thought something like this might happen, but I didn't really understand his explanation. 
Ah, it's a baby, it's a baby, it's a baby. Oh, I see. It's a baby, it's a baby, it's a baby. Ah, of course. Bethany was charming, but something was bothering me about her. It's funny, Miss Computesworth, your accent isn't anything like your sister's. Pardon me, madam, I'm sorry to interrupt, but have any of you seen a news crew from NZC around here? I think I saw them setting up for interviews on the terrace over there. He seemed nice. Ooh, did you bring your ray gun? Can I see it? This stupid dress doesn't have any pockets, so I- It's a gown, dear. Peasants wear dresses. I had no idea how to respond to that, and right then I would have given anything to change the subject. Oh, thank God. As the party descends into chaos, Vale's usual confidence returns. She is once more in her element, but her companion... Ah, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Watch out! Ah! Vale! You... you saved my life! I saw that chandelier falling, but I just... I just froze! Pull yourself together! We've got to find your sister and get out of here! Hey, did you see a young woman? Black hair, sounds kind of like a robot. I reckon I saw the varmint headed toward the setting sun, and that stairwell over yonder. Thank you, sir. Oh, he's gone. Hey, why does your sister talk like a robot anyway? Oh, that's because she's a computer. Sure, but she's... Wait, do you think Alice is a computer like... A machine made from microchips and vacuum tubes? I don't know what computers are made from. I just know my something-something great-grandfather made his fortune inventing them, and being a computer has run in the family ever since. And anyway, wasn't she the computer on your ship? Yes, but that's... Bethany, that was Alice's job. She did all the calculations. Right, because she's a computer. No, computer is the title for the person who handles the math. Bethany, Alice is a human person. <gasps> then why has she been lying to me? Why indeed. Tune in next week to learn the truth. And now the recap for Afternoon in Dublin. appears vast and green out of the windows of the Argamas Bridge. And while the youngest children marvel at the sights, the rest of the crew take care of tasks that are neglected during the ship's busier times. Elle sorts through piles of laundry and Astonaji examines Pudu's kubele. After seeing how Pudu is able to control the Saikomu with seemingly no ill effects, he advises Bright that they ought to be using Pudu as a pilot. Despite the youth of all of their mobile suit pilots, Bright is hesitant to put so young a child in that position. Before deciding, he'd like to have her examined by a doctor. And luckily, they will be able to do that when they stop in Dublin for Bright's meeting the Federation officials in exile. From a Neo-Zeon-controlled base, a shuttle launches carrying new mobile suits and pilots to Glemmy. 
But on their way to the Mindra, the shuttle crews spot the Argama flying through the dense white clouds. Their commander, Arius Moma, orders an attack. They may not have base jabbers for their Bawu, but at least they'll have surprise on their side. The mobile suits will attack from freefall, while one pilot stays behind and aims the shuttle itself at the Argama, ejecting at the last possible moment before impact. Bright has kept his reasons for stopping in Dublin to himself, and when Judo barges in asking why they've altered course, why they aren't going straight to Norway, Bright starts to say he doesn't have to explain every little decision. But Judo interrupts him. Don't you want to see your family? Losing his cool, Bright yells back that if they get through this alive, he'll see his family someday. And Judo immediately thinks of Lena. He spaces out, staring blankly ahead until Puru asks if he is okay. And with a blink, he's back to normal, smiling and chatting, but Pudu is upset and runs off down the hall. Chasing after her, Judo tries to convince her to calm down. She can't let herself get this upset every time she senses something, but it's no use. The bridge crew spot the three incoming Bawu and sound the alarm. In the hangar, Pudu says to herself, they're here, before turning to Judo and accusing him of wishing she had died instead of Lena. Despite his assurance that he would never think such a thing, Pudu gets in the core base. No longer caring if she dies, she takes off, determined to take on the enemy all by herself. This is bad news for Enol, who was on the floor of the core base cockpit doing repairs, only to find himself along for the ride on Pudu's suicide mission. Judo and Bicha launch in the other double Zeta parts and keep trying to calm Pudu as they hunt for enemy mobile suits in the thick cloud cover. The kids' supernaturally fast communication helps them evade Arius's attacks, so the Neo-Zeon force refocus their energy on the Argama itself, forcing it into evasive maneuvers. Judo is able to lead one of the enemy Bawu into the path of its own shuttle, obliterating mobile suit and pilot. The other two pilots retreat, and the Argama is able to dodge the plummeting fireball that was the shuttle. Pudu seems calm, as Judo's reassurances and compliments finally get through to her. The Argama lands in the woods. While Rue hides the ship under branches and brush, the rest of the younger cohort drive into town to run errands and take Pudu to the doctor. At the top of a rise, they look down at the city and speculate that a particular large house with expansive gardens must be where Bright went to meet with the Federation higher-ups. On hearing this, Judo lets himself out of the car, telling them he'll meet them in town later. Yet after stopping at the hospital, running all their errands, and loading up the car, there's still no sign of Judo. They return to the Argama, wondering what happened to him. Bright walks alone down a tree-lined drive, leading to the Beach Mansion, the temporary headquarters of those Federation officials who fled Dakar ahead of Haman's invasion. An assistant shows him to a terrace where the Federation officials are having an opulent lunch. They are surprised to see him, and ask if it's true that he opposes their current peace policies. Bright says that it is true, but he hardly sees how giving Haman Side 3 is a peace policy. Haman has made control of Side 3 a condition for any ceasefire, and the Federation officials are convinced Haman will calm down once she controls the birthplace of Zion. When Bright tries to convince them that this will have the opposite effect, they accuse Ayug of wanting the war to continue, since they are in cahoots with the war profiteers at Anaheim Electronics. Besides, they know he's going to Norway and that the Argama is being decommissioned. He should relax. The war is basically over. Surely he can sit and have a drink with them. A disgusted Bright keeps trying to convince them, but they only laugh. 
until who should climb onto the terrace railing but a furious, formerly eavesdropping judo. He rants that they don't understand anything. Not Haman, not Neo Zeon, not the people doing the actual fighting. It's because they sit around doing nothing that the world is falling apart. Jumping onto the table, kicking over dishes and bottles, he strides up to the admiral and grabs him by the shirt. How can they think the crew of the Argama want to keep fighting? They have no idea the losses they've suffered, the sacrifices they've made. With that, he punches the admiral in the face, knocking him to the ground. Bright finally steps in, but it's a bit late for that. They are surrounded by guards and jailed in the basement of the mansion. Meanwhile, Arius receives permission from Glemmy to flush the Argama out of hiding. He orders his pilots to bomb the city indiscriminately. Through a high, barred window, Judo and Bright hear the explosions and a sudden flash of light. Beach Mansion has been hit. Federation Command rushes to evacuate the grounds, but they are caught out in the open when more bombs fall. Broken trees and wounded or dead people litter the formerly pristine lawns. The mansion is on fire, and the basement door remains barred. Judo and Bright yell for help between coughs and wheezes, their eyes streaming as smoke fills their prison. Ambulances arrive, and who should be among the medical staff but Fa Yuri? Calmly assessing and tending the wounded, she realizes she can hear someone yelling for help and follows the sound to a barred basement window. Finding an army jeep nearby, she crashes it carefully into the wall, breaking open a space large enough for people to get through. It also allows some of the smoke to clear, and she finally sees who she rescued. They pile into the jeep in a hurry to return to the Argama and see their own mobile suits overhead. Bicha and Ru have launched in an attempt to lure the attack away from the city. They ask Fa what she's doing there, but rather than answer, she asks them the same. Bright answers cryptically that he came to shed tears after being smothered in smoke, and they all fall silent as bombs continue to fall on Dublin. Laundry day is a very dangerous day. Yeah, a lot of people died. Some of them might have deserved it. But let's start at the beginning with the first scene of this episode, which is probably at Kilimanjaro at the old Titan's base there where the Psycho Gundam was under development. And Haman is launching two shuttles, one of which carries some sort of important cargo bound for Glemmy. And by important cargo, I mean it's the Psycho Gundam Mark II. I think that's made pretty clear by the binder that she's looking at. He says that, but I thought the binder was totally unrelated to what was being shipped to Glemmy, so... (laughs) She can multitask. She's a very important woman with many things to do. You're right, you're right. We shall find out in the future which one of us is right about that. It sounds like they tested the Psycho Gundam with all of their new types and no one was compatible, so they've sent it off to Glemmy because they know he's got some new types of his own, and they send it guarded by Arius Moma, our new antagonist, and the baldest one yet. Who turns out to be a fairly 
powerful new type himself. Yeah, he gets a new type flash in the middle of one of the battles and manages to avoid an attack from the enraged and new type charged up Puru. He doesn't um, seem to have much personality, certainly not on the level of a Mashima or a Kiara or even a Gotten. A little bit like August, he kind of feels like he wandered in from Zeta, where these sorts of like mid-twenties, generically power-hungry career soldiers were de rigueur for the villains. I don't know. Maybe they'll characterize him more in the future. Maybe we'll find out he collects something that makes him weird enough to fit in with this cast. It was very brief, just for like a second flashed on screen, but those pictures of Rosamia in the binder that Haman is looking at really got to me. I was so affected by those. And I think the reason is that to see this person, this tragic figure, reduced to just like a headshot in a binder in a report on failed experiments, it's just so sad. That's her legacy. Well, that and Camille. Where is Camille? I strongly suspect he's here in Dublin. I noticed when Fa is asked, what are you doing in Dublin? She doesn't answer. And I can't imagine that she would leave Camille behind. And we know there are some very good doctors here since Bright wants to send Puru to one to be examined. And so I do wonder if there's some local doctor who specializes in new type stuff. I don't know. (laughs) Or just like brain stuff. That was my assumption because they say doctor, but I assume that it's like a psychiatrist or something because what Bright is concerned about is that there's something wrong with Pudu, like psychologically. Mm -hmm. And presumably that's what Camille needs as well since physically he seemed to be healthy the last time we saw him. So yeah, my suspicion is that Camille is in Dublin as we speak. And so from this shuttle launch, we then jump over to the Argama for Laundry Day. The first time I watched this episode, my immediate reaction to clothes on the bridge was, this is very silly, what point does this serve? However, it ends up actually contributing a lot to the episode <laughs> on a couple of different levels. Uh, okay, you're going to need to explain that. Uh, point one. It shows us that while Elle will willingly do, quote unquote, women's work on the ship and she doesn't seem to resent it, she is going to make a ruckus. She is going to take up space. She is going to make you help. (laughs) (laughs) It shows us a lot about Elle in her role on the ship and maybe how she's different from some of the previous women on Gundam ships you know, still doing similar tasks, but in a different way. And very conscious that this work is being treated as women's work in a way that maybe wasn't explicitly stated previously, even if it was still clear. Elle refuses to let the laundry become an invisible task that just happens in the background, that these things are just handled by somebody for you and you don't have to think about them. She bursts onto the bridge. She's like, bright, you have to sort your laundry. Torres, you too. She takes up space. Um, She takes up mental space more than physical space. And on a meta level, the show is also refusing to let these things disappear into the background. Laundry day is not the sort of thing that normally shows up in, you know, mecha space opera. Unless Tomino is directing it. (laughs) Tomino Project's frequently include these diversions into the like 
basic, fundamental, necessary tasks of life. I think he likes finding drama in the quotidian. And laundry has come up in Gundam before and in Double Zeta quite a few times. You know, that scene where Judo runs through and knocks over Bicha and Mondo, who are both carrying folded laundry, is reminiscent of when they were uh, on the Endra and they were at Axis and they were being tasked with doing the laundry. And when Kiara was a prisoner aboard the Argama, they made her do the laundry. So in the past, laundry doing has been relegated to the defectors, the prisoners, the like lowest, most invisible people. But now Elle is doing it on the bridge in the middle of everything. So that's one level. Second level, the clothes on the bridge add some really great visual interest to the combat mm-hmm. that happens, the first one, uh, because the movement of the clothes around the bridge tells us what the ship is doing, <laughs> and we feel it in a way that would have been harder to convey if there wasn't a bunch of lightweight, loose stuff floating around. You know, they drop altitude suddenly, and the clothes appear to float upwards. They bank hard in one direction out of the way of the uh, fireball that used to be a shuttle, and the clothes go flying sideways, and we can feel it. Everything in this combat looks amazing, and it's all really thoughtfully animated. The scenes are beautifully composed, and you get a lot of these visual elements that helps you emphasize the movement. You know, when the pilots are flying around in their core fighters, uh, you can really feel and see the G-forces acting on Bicha, for instance. When he's really accelerating, you can see his mouth sort of being like pulled to the side. Well, and they have speed lines. Mm-hmm. I noticed that. It was great. I love that they picked a cloudy sky to do the combat in. (laughs) And they didn't just have a cloudy sky like as a backdrop. The way the things are going into and out of the clouds. Exactly. When Arius first appears, he drops out of the cloud cover. There's a point where the uh, Axis mobile suits are skimming over a cloud and it's almost like they're sliding down a snowy embankment or something. Yeah, it's like they're skiing. It's beautiful. Or when the shuttle emerges from the clouds right behind that one Bawu and just eradicates it. Yeah, which, as it happens, segs pretty nicely into the third thing about the laundry, although this uh, relates to the clouds as well, humor. Because let's face it, stinky underpants are hilarious (laughs) as long as we don't have to smell them. Other people's clothes with all these embarrassing rips and tears in them. Bright's reaction to it. Where he's <laughs> That's like, not mine. Well, well, it's not mine. Ah, yeah. So when Bright is saying that, uh, the camera is positioned right in front of Torres's face. And Torres has this kind of grimace on his face. <laughs> and I'm not sure if he's annoyed because he's waiting for orders from Bright. Or if Torres is worried that somebody is going to realize that those are his shorts. I got more of an irritated vibe. I thought he was just mad at Elle for doing this on the bridge. (laughs) But there is something humorous about the laundry. And the clouds add an element of humor to the end of the fight. Bicha is in all this cloud cover and he can't see anything. And Bright winds up ordering him out of the clouds. (laughs) Pudu and Judo will handle it. Judo pulls off that trick where he gets one of the mobile suits to position itself right in the path of the shuttle. 
So he's taken out by his own shuttle. And then when the fight is over, when Axis retreats, we have Beecha, who still can't see anything, going, <laughs> what happened? Is it over? Well, is it done? Did we win? And then Beecha stumbles into the other shuttle, although he doesn't know what it is or what it betokens. In many ways, this episode felt like two episodes to me, in part because it would not have been unusual for Gundam to spend an entire episode on this early portion and that fight. Uh, and also because the tenor of the earlier part of the episode is much funnier than the latter half. Mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned the humorous stuff with the underwear, Beach's confusion about the state of the fight. Eno in the cockpit with Puru is hilarious. <laughs> I'm piloting all alone. You're not alone. I'm right here. <laughs> I don't care if I die. I do. I don't want to die. Yeah. No, I... It's it's really funny. It's really, really funny. So, like, every Gundam episode, at least at this point, is obliged to have a fight in it. I don't know if that's an actual written rule, but they always have a fight. Um, and so, usually, the episode is like... 60% set up and then a fight to pay it off and to resolve whatever the essential conflict of the episode is. It's always interesting when they put the fight at the beginning of the episode because it means they're going to do something really important and serious with the rest of the episode and they want the fight out of the way. It also usually means that whatever they're going to do in the second half is not going to be resolved because the fights accomplish the resolution of whatever mm. the problem, whatever the tension is. It has to come to a head in the fight and then be resolved. That's fascinating. I hadn't noticed that about the structure of the episodes, but that's absolutely true. Good catch. Two other little humor notes. When the pilot of the shuttle calls Arius and the camera is too zoomed in on his face <laughs> and he startles Arius. And I feel like that's a sensation that some of us are familiar with if we've tried to do video calls with people before this year, when now everybody has learned how to video call, uh, but maybe with people who weren't as used to it and have their phone too close to their face or what have you. Camera looking up at the nostrils. Yeah, I thought that was very funny. And then the last one for me that I giggled over successively is that Bright is being very secretive about what he's doing in Dublin. But it's very clear that everybody already knows the Federation are at Beach Mansion. Astonaji is asking him, what are we doing here? He's actually willing to tell Astonaji, and he sort of whispers behind his hand, well, have you ever heard of Beach Mansion? And he's like, oh, yeah, where the Federation high-ups are. And later, the kids know. Right. Like when the kids are driving into town, they know that it's there. Axis knows that that's what is there. Like, everybody knows. And yet Bright is being so secretive and so cautious. Well, and the Federation officials seem to be counting on secrecy as well because they don't have meaningful defenses for Beach Mansion. I thought it was funny how often they say the name Beach Mansion. They say it over and over again um, in a way that made me think there was something more going on with the name. And I'll have to look into that. Hello, this is your editor with a content warning. Over the next five minutes, we discuss Puru, Puru 2, and their roles in this episode. That discussion touches on the sexualization of children's bodies in Double Zeta and suicidal ideation among children and teenagers. If you would like to skip that discussion, you should skip ahead now to the 36 minute, 45 second mark.
I'm going to say something very similar to what I said last week. I really wish that I could unreservedly recommend this episode to people because it's really good. It looks really good. I mean, we talked last week about how that was a real step up in the animation. And this week, I think, is at least as good as last week's. So again, I wish I could unreservedly recommend it. And this episode itself does not contain any naked children. But the last episode recap does. And that's a real shame. Now, I'm not saying that nudity can never be artistically necessary, or even that it has to be necessary to be included, but given that LP Puru shares her name with a child pornography magazine, and hey, if you're just joining us, LP Puru shares her name with a child pornography magazine, you should go listen to episodes 3.16 and 3.17 for more information about that. But given all of that, the show would need a really compelling justification for the way it's treating Purutu's naked body, and it just isn't there. But within the bounds of this episode... If we cut out that recap bit. Exactly. I really like the treatment of Puru. I think it's revealing about her. I think it's sensitive to her as a character. Uh, and I think it's a good portrayal of her. I think it allows her to be a child a deeply traumatized child who is in the middle of a war, but a child. When she bursts forth from the doctor's office, running through the halls, yelling, puru, 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 and insisting that nothing is wrong with her. Yeah, I want to talk a bit about Puru's emotional sensitivity, which in the show is cast as part of her new typeness. Uh, if we were talking about a real-life person, you know, there are any number of sort of mental health conditions that make you particularly sensitive to strong emotions, make you exhibit strong emotion more often or in uncontrollable ways. But in this episode, it is strongly implied that part of Pudu's reaction to Judo's emotion in that scene where he suddenly thinks about Lena and sort of spaces out momentarily is amplified by her reaction to the incoming new type Arius Moma. She's feeling all these powerful feelings. They're all getting mixed together. And it's almost a, a feedback loop. The differing emotions, she can't differentiate them. They keep getting stronger and making each other stronger, and she is completely overwhelmed. She has this thought process of like, Judo is upset because Lena is dead, even though I'm here with him. Therefore, if I had died and Lena were here, then he wouldn't be upset. You know, plus, in the immediate aftermath of Lena's death, he asked Pudu, why did you leave her alone? And so she feels like he blames her. And it takes pretty much the entire combat for all of his reassurances to get through to her. Though at the end, it does feel like she hears one single compliment and immediately is like, fine. Which, you know, same. We can also credit some of what Judo was saying even before the fight and during the fight about... It's not going to make me happy if you get hurt. I would never think about, like, you being dead instead of Lena. And this exhibits what I was talking about earlier, that rhythm of tension being resolved through the completion of the battle. The other thing I want to zero in on really quick, because it's, I think, interesting and of potential use <laughs> to you, our listeners, uh, if you have any young people in your life whose mental health you're concerned about. Uh, but Puru exhibits what... I cannot remember who I heard this from, but it was some mental health professional, and they called it the Tom Sawyer fallacy and said it's very common with teens and children who think about suicide. 
the literary reference there is that Tom Sawyer uh, fakes his own death and then is present at his funeral. So he gets to hear everybody who throughout the book has treated him like the uh, unrepentant rapscallion that he is now being so sad and mournful and saying all these nice things about him. Often when children or teens think about suicide, they are imagining that they are imagining oh, then they'll be sorry, then they'll be sad, then they'll regret what they did to me. Uh, and the person who was describing this and who I wish I remembered now uh, was saying one of the things that professionals often counter this kind of thinking with is just like, you wouldn't be there to know. It won't matter because you won't exist. You can't actually know what would happen and it wouldn't matter anyway. Like, you're expecting this catharsis out of it that you cannot have. Regular listeners of this podcast will by now have realized that I have a clear preference among the writers of Double Zeta for Suzuki Yumiko, who was the writer of this episode. <laughs> and one of the things that I think she did really well in this episode was the treatment of judo in the scene on the bridge with Bright and Puru and everyone. Because... This shows us something that we have just sort of assumed over the last few episodes, which is that he is grieving. He is still tormented by the memories of Lena's death, but he's holding it together for the sake of everybody else. And he's cracking a little bit. It's a struggle for him. And while we could assume that because it was the most likely thing, given what we knew about him and what was going on, it's nice to see it. It's nice to have it expressed for once. And combined with the pictures of Rosamia at the beginning of the episode, it gives a feeling that Gundam is often very bad at conveying that these people's memories linger on after death, that they don't just simply vanish when they leave the story. These characters lived and died. You mentioned something when we were preparing to record this talk back, which I thought was very interesting, where you said, this is really an episode about Bright. And this scene with Judo is so important to open up uh, some of Bright's inner world, which we are not particularly privy to. Because Bright is always putting on a facade for the sake of maintaining discipline or cohesion aboard the Argama. When Judo says, don't you want to be with your family? He doesn't understand why Bright isn't doing what Judo would do, which we saw. Once Lena was captured, Judo made some attempt to rescue her almost every episode. No matter what. The implication here being that Mirai and the kids are in Norway. I don't know if they are, but otherwise this wouldn't make any sense. We know that Bright has struggled with his idea of his relationship to his children, with the idea that he is a bad father because he hasn't been present. But we also know that he and Mirai discussed this and had a, a plan and a goal, and he was going to go achieve it. Well, and that clear goal that he had, that he discussed with Mirai, was defeating the Titans. That's been accomplished. So Bright is trying to figure out what he should do next. You know, he and the audience are primed for this discussion because before Judo even shows up, what does El call him? Dad. She calls him Oto-san. And he is like stuck between these different desires. He has his obligation to his family, but he also has obligations to the Argama, to the crew, to these kids who are in a like very real present sense, his kids. 
I had an observation in this episode that in a funny way, it feels like the most consistent thing about Bright through these three series. We've seen him change a fair amount, but what is very consistent is he is a career soldier and he that's what he wants or seems to be what he wants and what he's comfortable with. And to some degree, I feel like he wants to know that there's somebody in charge who's going to make decisions and give him orders. <laughs> and that has kind of fallen apart for him. Yeah, I mean, even going back to First Gundam, certainly through Zeta and definitely in Double Zeta, the great tragedy of Bright's life is that he has dedicated himself to this institution and its leaders have always been terrible. And they've never valued him. They've always seen him as, at best, a useful pawn and at worst, a annoying gnat. You know how much we love small animated gestures. Well... Uh, I hadn't even noticed that he was mostly wearing his uniform unbuttoned lately, which is an interesting change for Bright, until he's walking up to the mansion and he makes sure his uniform is fully buttoned uh, before he goes to meet with these higher-ups. And the first thing he does after the meeting is to unbutton it again. And I think it does indicate a, a discomfort with the uniform and what it represents. He's constantly fiddling with the collar, and in this episode, he has it more undone than we've seen recently. Speaking of his uniform, I know I have a lot of political questions about the world of UC Gundam that may never be answered, but Bright is wearing a Federation uniform while he fights for Ayug uh, and sometimes Karaba. What relationship do all of these organizations have to each other? Uh, like, does the Federation consider Ayug terrorists or a political faction? Or, like, what do they consider them? How do they treat them? And vice versa. How do these different, you know, fundamentally political organizations relate to each other? Think back to Zeta, there were scenes, uh, especially during the Earth arc, I remember, where the Titans had a Garuda and Karaba had a Garuda and they were chasing each other around. Um, but the people actually flying each of these vehicles were wearing the same uniforms. Yeah. And I think when he first got involved in this conflict, like you said, Bright wanted to get rid of the Titans, but thought that the Federation army was perhaps salvageable. Now, <laughs> not so sure. It's certainly rotten at the top. But he definitely wants this group of men, it's all men, uh, to oh. regard him as one of them, or at least as having something in common with them. Mm -hmm. The other thing I was going to say about the organizations is that it's very common historically for paramilitary organizations that are roughly aligned with the interests uh, of the ruling government to have members sort of flow in and out of the regular armed forces or the regular state security apparatus. Because we are in Ireland, I've been doing a bit of reading recently about the Troubles, for instance, and in Northern Ireland, uh, it was very common for members of loyalist militias to join the British army or to join the police in order to get weapons and training and information from sympathetic members of those organizations. Going back even further, I remember reading at one point that a lot of uh, 
Irish who came to the United States during the Civil War and were immediately conscripted looked at it as a potential training ground for an independence movement back home. Wars might be the big conflicts, but they're also the training grounds and supply uh, lines for littler conflicts. Absolutely. And of course, think back to the research pieces that I did on the Young Officers Movement in Japan. These kinds of semi-independent factions feuding within the larger military structure are not new or uncommon. So while it's a bit confusing, there's nothing particularly novel about this A.U. Karaba Titans situation. One thing that gets thrown into relief in this scene where he's talking to the Federation government in exile, I guess, although I'm sure the ones in Dakar also call themselves the Federation government, <laughs> is something we've noted a few times. Double Zeta appears much more class conscious than previous Gundam shows. And this meal that these men are eating has way more in common with Glemmy than it does with Bright. White linen tablecloth on the terrace of a mansion with a waiter, towel over his arm, waiting to serve them. Fancy bottles of wine, even though it's the middle of the day. Real meat, even though meat substitutes are much more earth friendly. The line that he has about this, where he's like, I can't imagine why anyone would ever eat synthetic meat, is so perfectly like Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake. Oh, yeah. Sort of. Because it neglects the fact that synthetics are probably cheaper at this juncture in the future. Especially out in space. And undercuts the idea that the people governing the Earth have any altruistic interest in the environment. Because we've known for a long time, and I think it's clear they're making a point about this in the scene, but uh, meat production is horrible for the environment. It's just bad. The amount of meat that we consume has a detrimental impact on the earth. And this guy looks at it as like a, a meaningless choice. And why would you do it when real meat is so much more delicious? And then the admiral responds with a, like a health concern. Right. He makes it about about being healthy, not about the ecology or the economy. Like, I imagine most people can't afford real meat, which, interestingly, probably all of those burgers that we've seen them eating, probably synthetic meat. Probably. And then when the camera pans over the table and we see all of these huge dishes heaping with food, what do I think of? But at the beginning of this series, when the Argama crew didn't have enough food to eat. You know, they're feasting while their soldiers starve. That's a really good note. One of the big points I think they're making in this scene is how short-sighted these guys are. And that comes through in a bunch of ways. Uh, it comes through in their appeasement policies towards Axis, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, it comes through in their attitudes toward the food, toward the earth. Uh, it comes through in this one guy saying, ah, yeah, I'm a smoker too. Like, it's all about present enjoyment at the expense of the future. And about the ways that wealthy and powerful people are sheltered from the impacts even of their own decisions. Yeah, so this is really all about um, empire collapsing. Because you can think of empire as essentially a relationship where the uh, beneficiaries of empire extract more wealth, more food, more benefits, more labor, etc. 
um, from whoever the empire is imposing its power on. And you can look back to early empires like Rome, where this was a matter of going out, conquering an adjacent nation, enslaving its people, taking its goods, taking its fertile land. And then you can look at the colonial empires, where it was about captive markets, raw material extraction, and then selling your processed manufactured materials to them at inflated prices. And you can look at neocolonialism as essentially a, a, a similar process of extracting the value out of other places and bringing them home to the imperial heartland. And when empires collapse, they're no longer able to bring in enough external value to distribute its benefits amongst uh, the citizens of the empire. And when that happens, the people at the top start taking a larger and larger percentage of the available wealth, of the available food, of the available benefits. What I thought was so brilliant in the writing of this episode is that they try to buy Bright off. They say, have a seat, have some real meat, have a drink of this good wine. And the price for that is he has to let the Argama be decommissioned. Give up your power to change things. Give up your power to make the world better. And in exchange, you personally can be comfortable for a little while. And Bright's expression as they do this, he starts off sort of grimacing and then looks angry. And he is disgusted by these men because for them, this is all just some intellectual exercise with no urgency. They have no skin in the game. It doesn't affect them. Nothing about this hurts them or appears to touch them in any way. Whereas he and his crew have been fighting for their lives. He challenges them about the decision to give side three to Haman because he says, don't you think this will just make her stronger? This will just inflame the neo Zeon movement. But what do they care? They're all old smokers eating a ton of meat, they think they're all going to be gone before any of this comes back to bite them. They also just may not really understand Haman and what it is Haman is trying to do in the way that people who have fought her and met her do. Uh, yeah, this obvious reference to appeasement, which was a policy mostly of European powers, also the United States vis-a-vis -vis, uh, fascist movements. In the 1930s and early 1940s, before the outbreak of World War II, uh, and the attitude was very similar. It was like, well, if we just like give them the couple of things they're asking for right now, like, you know, Czechoslovakia or Poland or whatever. Or Ethiopia, which was called Abyssinia at the time. Well, then they'll be satisfied. They won't ask for anything more. They think they're going to be able to buy Haman off and they think that they can buy Bright off. Well, not for nothing. Haman has told them that side three is her requirement in order to sign a ceasefire. But how long will she stick to that? I did a little more reading about appeasement because I was curious uh, about possible other parallels within the show or within the episode. And a couple of things stick out. One, that appeasement was mostly because collective security efforts at things like the League of Nations had failed. Japan was a member of the League of Nations when they invaded Manchuria, and it didn't stop them. When the League sanctioned them, they're just like, okay, we're leaving the League of Nations and we're still going to invade Manchuria. And none of the League of Nations powers sent troops to go help with that. Most of them did not get involved in the Spanish Civil War in an official capacity because they weren't sure who was going to win and they didn't want to be on anybody's bad side. 
There was an appeasement policy with Hitler in Germany. And when Italy invaded Abyssinia, now Ethiopia, the emperor came to Europe to ask for help and was basically sent on his way with a, we wish we could do something, but we can't, sorry. So we've talked about how awful <laughs> the uh, Federation is. So why for the conflicted feelings on Brightside? Well, because as it happens, they make unfortunately good points about AUG, which is that AUG is backed and funded by Anaheim Electronics, a war profiteering company. As long as it's profiting off the war, what possible interest could they have in achieving peace? This is like uh, anytime Beecha says something sensible. Sometimes you can have a horrible person who is still right about something. The problems with AUG have always been there, and Bright has been able to overlook them, but it's starting to become a real challenge for him. People ask Bright over and over again, why did you come to Dublin in this episode? And he never gives a straight answer. He's always prevaricating. And I think that reveals that he, like, kind of doesn't know why he's doing stuff. He's... He's looking for a leader. Yeah, unfortunately, Bright keeps looking for an organization worthy of him. And uh, there just aren't any, dude. Organizations in the Universal Century are bad. You get above the level of like one or two ships and they all become corrupted. I had a revelation about the end of this scene because I noticed, you know, Judo appears. Yeah, Judo. He has heard some of this conversation, maybe most of it. He is angry. He's telling these guys off. I was thinking about how his role sometimes seems to be that he gets to punch the people we've always wanted to punch in these episodes. On some level, he's Bright's id here. He's saying the things that Bright's feeling but cannot say. He's busting up this party and kicking over the plates of food and punching the Admiral in the face, which Bright cannot bring himself to do, but I think he completely agrees with Judo here. This scene with Bright being laughed at by all of these Federation higher-ups really made me think about the scene when he gets beaten up by the Titans. It is emotionally the same thing. It is Bright's humiliation. Unwittingly, Bright brings up a deep philosophical question in this episode. When the kids are looking out the window of the bridge at the beginning of the episode, admiring the beautiful green, bright green forests and fields around Dublin, he mentions to everyone that the forests of Europe are largely man-made, that because there were so many people, the forests had to be purposefully replenished uh, or Europe would also be a desert. How interesting that Europe got an intensive reforestification program in order to preserve and beautify it, whereas the continent of Africa was just sort of left to decay. And we actually get a line back in the Africa arc where they say it, basically that it's unrestrained desertification, that no efforts have been taken to stop it. And our understanding of desertification has changed somewhat. I believe I talked about that in a research piece at some point. But Bright draws this distinction between what's natural and what is like built or affected by humans. And if anything that human beings have altered is not natural, then most of the earth is not natural. Arguably, none of the earth is natural. You know, human existence shapes so much 
of our environment? So that's a deep question that <laughs> I don't necessarily want to try to answer right now. Well, I think it goes to show essentially the necessity of human action. And this is another point that gets made during the scene, because when Judo shows up and he's kicking over the plates and he's yelling at them and punching them, he also says it's because people like you sit around doing nothing that the world is going to heck. Because these guys sitting at the table have power. They have institutional power. They can make decisions. Somebody made the decision to dedicate resources to rebuilding Europe's forests. They could have done that in Africa. These things are not natural processes. They're the product of human choices. And humans can choose differently. And then Elle has a line that just kind of sent me spinning. Because she says, So that's why humanity moved to space. And I think she's meant to be an audience insert here, but it makes no sense for someone L's age to have that line. Uh, because if their education system is even remotely, even the littlest bit like our education system now, I know she was kind of a truant and attended irregularly, but she would have been thoroughly indoctrinated as to why humans moved into space. That would have been a thing covered in her spacenoid school. I would say that there's a very good chance that anything that the Earth Federation government views as maybe kind of a shameful moment in their history would be, you know, amended, cut out, soft pedaled in the history classes, especially for younger kids. And the whole like eco-fascist forcing all of the poor people off of Earth uh, in order to make it a nicer place for the wealthy to live. And to continue destroying. Is Maybe the kind of thing that you would not learn about until you got to grad school. And made me think of a fascinating idea. In the universal century, there should be, somebody should have thought of this, essentially birthright trips for spacenoids to go to Earth. If you're unfamiliar with birthright, it's a thing where if you're Jewish, you can get a free or almost free trip to Israel. Because they want the international Jewish community to feel connected to Israel, to feel like Israel is important, to want to preserve it, to feel invested in the place. And so they have these trips. I feel like usually high school and college-aged kids go for a couple weeks uh, in big groups. And if you really wanted space noids to care about Earth, wouldn't you try to send them to Earth for some period of time and be like, look at how beautiful it is. Look at how much fun we have. This is the birthplace of humanity. Don't you care what happens to it? That would require the leadership of the Earth Federation to be less cartoonishly corrupt and incompetent. Well, and <laughs> I have a doodle in my notes and it's a heart and inside the heart it says Gundam. No one really cares about the Earth. There's something wonderfully circular about this episode's narrative that almost at the very beginning we have the kids admiring the trees and Bright talking about the human effort to put those trees there. And we end with very detailed shots of those same trees broken into bits, blown out of the ground, stripped of vegetation, completely destroyed by this indiscriminate bombing by these people who also claim to want to be stewards of the earth. And now, Nina's research on Imanishi Takashi and Kaneyama Akihiro. 
Tom pointed out something interesting about the production team for these most recent episodes. There's a sort of passing of the torch happening. From animation director and key animator Kanayama Akihiro, who by the mid-80s had already been working in anime for 20 years, and who would semi-retire a little over a decade later, to episode director Imanishi Takashi, who at this point had only been working in animation for five years, and is still working today. So we wanted to take a closer look at these two anime industry professionals, their backgrounds, their careers, and whatever else we could find, with the usual caveats about my Japanese reading abilities. Kanayama Akihiro has been involved in nearly four dozen productions in his animation career, starting as an in-betweens animator on the third episode of Kimba the White Lion in 1965, and eventually working on both Zeta Gundam and Gundam Double Zeta. Born in Tokyo in 1939, he is a contemporary of Tomino's, and like many children of his generation, during World War II he was sent to the comparative safety of the country. He lived with a distant relative in Toyama Prefecture, and stayed there until he graduated high school. In middle school, he joined the art club, and by high school, he knew he wanted to be a mangaka, or manga creator, and he started working on an original manga. Upon graduating, he took a job at an ironworks in Chiba Prefecture, but spent his nights practicing writing and drawing and working on original manga, in a way his Wikipedia page describes as all-consuming. In 1960, at the age of 21, he returned to Tokyo and had his manga debut, although his major debut came four years and countless small publications later, when his manga Shonen Pro Resuo, or um, Young Pro Wrestling King, was serialized in publisher Akita Shoten's Bokeno, or Adventure King, magazine. As he became more confident in his work, he started getting into fights with his editors about changes they wanted made to his manga. On the advice of his older brother, who worked at Toei Doga, which later became Toei Animation, Kaneyama took a job at Tezuka Osamu's Mushi Productions, changing careers from mangaka to animator, although he would go on to have several original manga serials published during his animation career. He started as an in-betweens animator on Kimba the White Lion in 1965, but was promoted to keyframes during that same production, and had his first animation director credit in 1968 on the TV anime Wanpaku Tanteidan. It is while working at Mushi that he may have met Tomino, they both worked on Ashita no Jo, and Tomino storyboarded one of the episodes that Kanayama Animation directed. He continued to work at Mushi Productions until the studio declared bankruptcy in 1973. After Mushi, Kanayama worked as a freelancer for Wako Productions, Tatsunoko Productions, and Aiken Studio, and his work for these studios on projects like Kashern, plus the prestige of being a Mushi Production alumnus, brought him to the attention of Nippon Sunrise. He took a staff position at Sunrise in 1976, where he spent his first years working on three of director Nagahama Tadao's Super Robot series, which have been dubbed the Robot Romance Trilogy. These series are known for introducing human drama to the super robot genre. On these shows, he worked as a character designer and animation director for the productions as a whole, and his central role propelled him to sudden popularity. From the late 70s into the 80s, Countless features about him appeared in anime magazines, and his illustrations appeared on numerous book and magazine covers. However, his real love was being a key animator. He felt managerial positions didn't really suit his character and personality, and started turning down animation director roles so that he could focus on animation. While at Sunrise, Kanayama also worked on Zabungle, Ara Battler Dumbine, and Heavy Metal Elgheim. 
all as animation director for specific episodes. On Zeta Gundam, he was the animation director for 10 episodes and did the key animation for five. All five of those are episodes where he was also animation director. On Double Zeta, he was animation director for eight episodes and did key animation for seven. Again, the episodes he did key animation for are also episodes where he was the animation director. And we can see that between the two series, there's a small but evident shift to less directing and more animating. By 1998, when he was just 59, he'd ruined his health. He stepped back from anime production, working on smaller projects like solo exhibitions of his artwork, making doujinshi, or fan-created unofficial comics, and guest appearances at conventions and expos, while living on a pension from his studio days. He also taught at an animation academy in the Yoyogi neighborhood of Tokyo, though he retired from teaching in 2004. He is an inaugural member of the Japanese Animation Creators Association, a labor union representing workers in the animation industry. Formed in 2007, their focus is on raising living standards for animators, especially through livable wages. Kanayama was one of the industry veterans who spoke at a press conference about the union's formation, alongside famous names like Kon Satoshi. So Kanayama is our veteran. What about our new guy? Imanishi Takashi is almost exactly a generation younger than Kanayama. Born in 1957, the Osaka native is an animation director, episode director, writer, and producer. Readily available information on his background and early life is not nearly as detailed as for Kanayama, but after he graduated from Nihon University's fine arts program, the earliest credit I can find for him is as a production assistant on six episodes of Space Runaway Ideon in 1980, when he would have been 22 or 23. Imanishi seems to have spent his whole career with Sunrise. He's been a production assistant, a setting designer, a writer, a storyboard artist, an assistant director, and even a character designer once. I won't list all of the Gundam he's worked on, but it's a lot. Over a dozen of them, and continuing to today. His most recent credit is as a director on 2019's Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin Advent of the Red Comet. He's also worked on a lot of Armored Trooper Votoms and City Hunter projects. And Imanishi's first credits as an episode director are not, in fact, in Double Zeta. Just before then, he directed five episodes of a show called Blue Comet SPT Lasner, then two episodes of Gundam Double Zeta, this week's Afternoon in Dublin, and an upcoming episode, number 38, which I will not name because I already accidentally spoiled it for myself, and I certainly don't want to spoil it for any of you. Oh no. Over the years, he's been given additional responsibilities and more high-profile positions. And Sunrise must have been happy with his work because in 2006, they made him the director of Sunrise's digital productions department. As we've seen with a lot of other anime workers, Imanishi has a pseudonym, Okuma Asahide. It appears that he uses the pseudonym mostly, but not exclusively, for his writing credits. Okuma Asahide is the name of a real person, a military commander of the Warring States period, who famously fought the fencing master Kamizumi Nobutsana to a draw, was involved in some of the major conflicts of the time, rose to prominence, and died on the battlefield. None of which tells us why exactly Imanishi chose this pen name, so that part remains a mystery. One of the only other biographical details available about Imanishi is that he's married, and that he met his wife through work. Imanishi Kyoko, maiden name Takashima, started her career in animation at about the same time her husband did. Her first credit is in 1980 as a color designer for Space Runaway Ideon. She was the color designer on numerous other Tomino productions at Sunrise, including Aura Battler Dumbine, 
Heavy Metal Elgheim, Zeta Gundam, and Double Zeta. Color remained her wheelhouse. All of her credits are for color designer, key color, color grader, color checker, or color setting. None of the sources I found say when these two got married, but I can sort of pinpoint it based on when the credits switch from Takashima Kyoko to Imanishi Kyoko, sometime from 1989 to 1991. The last credit I found for her is in 1994, when she did color design and color setting for Armored Trooper Votom's The Heretic Saint OVA, and she doesn't appear to have worked in animation since then. This is speculation, but that probably means that we can pinpoint around when their first child was born. Yup. One more thing came up as I was searching for information about Imanishi Takashi, but it's not well sourced, so take it with a grain of salt. Two completely different sources mention incidents of, let's call it problematic or excessive drunkenness at work events. One Japanese language source says that in 2006, Imanishi's high school reunion fell on the same day as an all-night promotional event for the release of the Stardust Memory Remaster, and so he was noticeably drunk for the entire work event. The second source is an English-language blog about sakuga, or animation. In a 2016 entry, they note that Imanishi was the series director for four episodes of Gundam The Origin, but that his name does not appear in the credits for the fourth installment. They don't name their source, but say that someone involved in the production told them that Imanishi had shown up extremely drunk to an important pre-screening event attended by Bandai executives and the press. When I first skimmed these stories, I thought they were referring to the same incident, only to find that they refer to the same problem, the same behavior, but 10 years apart. At the time of the blog post, they speculated that not only had Imanishi been punished through the removal of his name from those credits, but this was simply the first indication that he was being blacklisted from future projects where Bandai would have decision power. However, they also note that they'd been told future Gundam The Origin installments simply wouldn't have a series director, the role was being eliminated. And just two years later, in 2018, Imanishi was back to working on Gundam The Origin. In number six, Rise of the Red Comet, he shares a director credit with Yaz, and was the director, though not the chief director, for the TV series Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, Advent of the Red Comet. So at most, there's a one, maybe two year gap in there. In a way, this brings us back to these two men and the similarities and differences between them. We've previously researched the different roles on the production team and learned that there are two main paths to becoming a director. There's the art path where you start as an animator and the production or management path where you start as a production assistant. Kanayama followed the first, and Imanishi the second. But they had very different reactions to advancement. Kanayama started turning down directorial assignments in favor of focusing on animation, while Imanishi, for all that I couldn't find any information about how he feels about directing, continues to take on directing positions on high-profile projects. They're from different generations, and had different paths to the anime industry. But sadly, the thing that makes them alike, other than their overlapping time working on Gundam, is their health problems. For both men, I'm making some logical but not provable deductions based off of what we know. Kanayama is described as having ruined his health by a young age, and given both that he semi-retired from animation at that point, and that we have countless stories of animators working themselves into the hospital, it's not such a leap to think that the strain of his career was the main factor in his health deteriorating. In Imanishi's case, we have some evidence he wasn't just socially drinking, he was drinking enough and at inopportune enough times that it interfered with his job. 
even put his job at risk. I'm pretty sure that's one of the signs a person might have a drinking problem. And while it's impossible to say when exactly that started, it's easy to imagine someone using alcohol to help them deal with their notoriously stressful job. Another Sunrise director who's worked on Gundam projects before made headlines a few years ago for talking openly about the frankly inhumane working conditions and the crushing hours that staff on these projects were being asked to work. Uh, he specifically referenced a production assistant at Sunrise who was working like 59 hours across just four days. You can easily imagine how working that kind of schedule could ruin someone's health or drive them into unhealthy coping mechanisms. Yeah, obviously we love anime or we wouldn't be doing this, but it's important for us to remember the conditions under which it is produced. I feel like I see stats floating around periodically about the kinds of ridiculously low wages that animators get paid in particular. And the Japan Animation Creators Association, the organization with which Kaneyama is affiliated, has in the past protested the extreme hours worked by animators, including regular 11-hour days and something like only four days off a month. Unfortunately, one of the things these two careers illustrate is that over more than 50 years, one constant across much of the animation industry is the terrible working conditions. Next time on episode 3.32, The Relentless Machine, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 34 and No One in Their Proper Place. Continuity or lack thereof. Schrodinger's undershirt. The amazing disappearing, reappearing, and re-disappearing arm. This isn't Bright's first cyber new type rodeo. You and what army? Chekhov's Psycho Gundam. The Devil Knows His Own. Transcending the Physical. The Young Man and the Sea. And the Gang's All Here. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, There's nothing wrong with me! as you run through the hospital lobby. We might not hear you, but those doctors need to know. And thank you for listening. Spoiler alert, we might express some feelings. You have been warned. 
And this is a reminder to future Tom to put in a content warning for our discussion of Kudu's suicidal ideation. Don't mess it up this time, you dummy. You are not a dummy. I know, but I messed up the content warning last time. Oh. I left in a note that was like, put in the timestamps <laughs> here. And then that made it to the initial release of the podcast. Whoops. And then Rose caught it for me, and then I fixed it. And only like 300 people downloaded the wrong version. I'm it's sure cool. It's cool. I don't blame myself for that at all. I bet that people thought that was sort of cute and charming. <laughs> Mistakes are also content. And now the recap for Afternoon in Dublin. Sorry, I have to say that again where I'm not laughing at you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> head, head bonking into your microphone. I also really don't understand anyone who has a car alarm in New York City. Yeah, seriously. Like, it's so much more likely to be set off by somebody bumping into your car or another car or bicycle passing too close or whatever mm-hmm. than it is by someone actually attempting to steal your car. Even if that was, like, if I had a car, I don't. But if I had a car, and that was my car alarm going off, I wouldn't recognize it. I'd just be like, ah, some <laughs> car alarm is going off. Oh, it stopped. Yes, okay. Uh, so camouflage appears to be Rue's specialty. She can just like camouflage a mobile suit or a ship anywhere, anytime. That's her jam. For someone who wants to stand out so much, she sure is good at hiding. are in a like very real present sense his kids he has to you know take them to their doctor's appointments her 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 you know i kind of can't believe we like this this episode is so dense Mm -hmm. that we talked for like 90 minutes during the talk back oh dear and we did not even once mention Elle's new hat nope it's a cute hat it is a good hat when she leaves the Argama with no hat, and she comes back so she with hat. she bought it in Dublin. Mm-hmm. Elle's her, new hat. It's her Dublin hat. So she needed a souvenir. Bright's obviously not convinced. I think if any of these men had met Haman, they would not think she'd be satisfied with just side three. There's a scene in the battle when they do a cut-in of one of Arius's wingmen, and he's looking off in one direction. And then Beecha in the core fighter flies across the screen in front of this guy, and he turns his head to follow Beecha's core fighter as he goes. And as he does this, the cut-in itself slides across the screen. It's so good. The other reason she might have stopped working there is because it sounds like working as an animator is miserable, and if her husband kept getting promoted, they might not have needed the money anymore. She might have been like, this sucks, I'm out. Peace. Go do something else. It's fun to say. It is.